seem to have brighter faces on these warm days. We've had a lot of them lately, and they've been nice. This morning we'll uh, continue or finish up our series really on dispensations. And uh, so let me begin with the word of prayer, ask God's help as we do this, and then we'll get started. Father, we recognize our uh, inability apart from You. And so we ask for your help now as we look into your word. Give us the understanding and uh, help us to have the attention uh, and focus that we need in order to to give ourselves to this task. And help me as I explain it. And may I get out of the way of the message of your truth so that you can be glorified in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are... um, Finishing up with the dispensation of grace, which is the dispensation that we are currently in, and want to show you, kind of continue what we talked about last week, that we have moved from the dispensation of law to to grace. So before I do that, let me just remind you about what a dispensation is. Dispensation is a recognizable uh, change in the administration of how God works. So God worked in a specific way with Adam and Eve. God worked before they sinned. God worked in a specific way with Adam and Eve after they sinned. God worked in a specific way with Noah, uh, the people during the time of Noah and patriarchs, and then on through um, through Moses, obviously, he started to present to the people his law in a different way. Rather than writing it on their hearts or on their consciences, he wrote it down on, on uh, uh, for Moses. It was tablets, but then he also explained all these other laws uh, to him. And so the reason that this is important, and we'll talk about this at the end as well, is that um, it determines how we're going to interpret the Scriptures when we come to them. So how we're going to look at the Old Testament, how we're going to look at the Law of Moses, how we're going to look at the church, when the church began, what is its nature, and so on. So the this understanding of the Scripture which I'm presenting to you is called dispensationalism or dispensational theology. And that is um, opposed to, or I I should say, a differing view than covenant theology, which sees that Israel and the church are the same. So that when you see Israel in the Old Testament, you're really seeing the church. they're, They're one and the same. The church of the New Testament is basically Israel continued. And um, they also um, they also believe that God's primary purpose in the world is to save sinners, and uh, we do believe that, that is a a very important and critical purpose of God, but not the most important. The most important is His glory, that He is glorified in all things, and God is gloried apart from people being saved. God is glorified in the death of the wicked. Psalm tells us, God is glorified in eternity past, apart from any human beings even being there. So, so certainly God has more to do in this world than just to save people, and, he, and he, certainly He's doing that. And then, uh, so in order to come to this sort of understanding of covenant theology, the way that covenant theology looks at it, is they're going to have to use multiple uses or multiple interpretations. They have to allegorize the Scriptures in some case. They have to spiritualize it. So when they come to text on Israel and the Old Testament, they have to spiritualize it and say, well, 
when when God was leading Israel out of the wilderness, God was really leading the church out of whatever, some sort of struggle. And so, so they, they over-spiritualized something that was just designed to be a narrative or a an example, an illustration of how God uh, leads His people. All right. So, um, we talked about the principles of interpretation. That was... Uh, a few weeks ago, and then we got into the the end times. That there are three primary views of the end times, and I won't uh, go back through all those. But um, last week we looked at the law, um, the covenant theology, and this is going to come up again today because we're 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 transitioning more. Last week we focused more on the law. This week we're fo- focusing more on its transition to our current. Um, administration, our current dispensation, that is, the the administration of grace. Covenant theology argues that we are still obligated under the law, that all of the moral absolutes that we are responsible for, or I should say many of the moral absolutes that we're responsible for, are because we are under the moral aspect of the law. But we saw last week that, that there are more eternal moral absolutes apart from the Mosaic Law. That there were eternal moral absolutes before the law. So, for example, um, one of the eternal truths that God has presented to His people that came before Moses was capital punishment. That those who shed man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis 9.6. Okay? And that's something that has transcended all the dispensations. So it's not... The reason that we obey the eternal truths that come from Moses' law is not because we're under the law of Moses. It's because God simply presented some eternal truths during that time period. Um, So, and really, if we're honest with ourselves and with the Scripture, I think we have to see that the Mosaic law is an indivisible unit. That if James 2.10 says that you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of the entire law. So we took some time to look at that last week to say that it's not just that, okay, we can take this little chunk out of the Mosaic Law, the, the moral part, and we can follow that or make that obligated, make ourselves obligated to it, and we'll leave the ceremonial and the civil parts aside. And that's what the people of covenant theology tend to do. But really, it's one indivisible unit. can't be separated. And therefore, as we saw Christians are not under the Mosaic Law. And we'll see a passage here today that shows that again. Mosaic Law was important, and it's not unnecessary for us. It's not unimportant for us, but we have to recognize that it was just a temporary teacher, a temporary tutor to point us to Christ. And its value is that it highlights God's grace during that period. It highlights God's grace now, that we have a better way, and it also highlights Christ's glory. So, this week what we want to do is look at grace. And we'll see how Christ established grace as the new way of administering His eternal truths. And uh, and this will not be the final way. We still have one more dispensation to come, and that is the Millennial Kingdom, where God will reveal His eternal truths through His Son, Jesus Christ. He will be the living Word, reigning as King So, we're going to look at three main passages that show that the law has been set aside, that is the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, 
has been set aside for the administration of grace. So turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 17. And this is a, a verse that came up the very first class we started look at, looking at this about 10, 10 or 11 weeks ago. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 17. Someone read there for for us John one seventeen. All right. So the law was given by Moses. You see a contrast here. There was the law, the Mosaic law, six hundred thirteen commands given to Israel, given by Moses. But now grace has been given through Jesus Christ. My translation, the the New American Standard says, the truth was realized through Jesus Christ. The idea of that uh, realized or came uh, is the idea of coming into being or originating. So this grace, whatever John's talking about here, we're going to find out what he is talking about. This grace that he's talking about is a brand new administration. It's, It's originating in Christ. Morning. Um, now look at look up to verse 16 because the context helps us see that we've all received Jesus' fullness uh, through this grace. That is, the readers, um, uh, specifically those in the church age. Verse 16, For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Or, in other words, grace after grace. So during... Christ's first coming, He brought a new form of grace. And He added it to the old form of grace. You see how that grace is building upon it in verse 16? It's grace upon grace. Actually, I'm doing it wrong with my hands here. Grace upon grace. The grace that already existed under Moses is now being built upon with more grace through Jesus Christ. Okay, so John was teaching that that during His first coming, Jesus brought in a new form that did not exist in the Old Testament. John brought in a new form that did not exist in the Old Testament. Okay, And what we need to see here in verse 17 is that this grace cannot be the grace at salvation. It cannot be the grace at salvation. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized or originated in Jesus Christ. This is not the grace of salvation. And let me show you that from Romans chapter 4. Because what we don't want to see is, okay, they were saved through the law of Moses. We're saved through grace. That's not what John is teaching. That's not what the Scriptures teach. And and Paul proves that here in Romans chapter 4. Would someone read verses 1 through 5 for us? What then shall we say that Abraham our father according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All right. So Paul's making an argument that we can't boast in our own faith just like Abraham couldn't because it's not in our works. If someone worked enough, then they would have earned their righteousness. But he's saying that that doesn't happen because we have to exhibit faith. And when we exhibit faith, um, it's being credited to us as if we were perfectly righteous, even though we're not. He goes on to talk about, in verses 6-8, through eight, about David, the other, um, the other example that he gives. So first he gives Abraham, which was before the law of Moses, before the dispensation of law. And then David, which was during the dispensation of law or following Moses. All right, now look at verses 9 through 12. Will someone read those for us? Alright, so here's what Paul's trying to say. This is Abraham before the law of Moses. He's saying, even Abraham was not justified by his works. Abraham, when was he called? When did God accredit his faith as righteousness? When did he credit it to his account? Was it while he was obeying the law? Or was it before? That's the whole point of circumcised, uncircumcised. Circumcised was a requirement of the law, we could say, of Abraham and would later be the law of Moses as well. And and Paul's point is, see, it's not while he was working. It was before that. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and he had to exhibit faith by, by following God there. And he did. That's when God credited righteousness to him. And so justification does not come by works. So, what we know there from Romans chapter 4, and now I'm trying to tie it back to John chapter 1 here, what we know is that God justifies by faith, not by works. So, this grace that comes on us, that grace upon grace, okay, the, the law was through Moses, but grace comes through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. That grace that we're talking about in John 1.17 cannot be salvation because of Romans chapter 4. Because they were still receiving grace in salvation. Um, and this is simply a new form of, of grace that Jesus is providing. It's not, he's not providing a new salvation. still salvation by grace through faith. Now, keep in mind that the Mosaic Law was deficient because it never provided eternal salvation. If someone uh, did their best to obey the Mosaic Law, they wouldn't have received eternal salvation because... It required you to keep the whole law, like we saw last week. Look at chapter 3 of Romans, verse 28. 
For we maintain, Paul says, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this makes sense. Because Abraham was justified by faith apart from the laws of Moses. He was justified by faith apart from the laws of circumcision even. Moses was justified that way. He gives the example of David in verses Verse, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, David was justified that way. And the point is that we're all justified by faith, not by works. So, so the law, by keeping it, is not going to save us. It's through faith in, in the Redeemer. And so instead of saving people eternally, what the law did was it condemned those who were under it. And that was one of its purposes. Look down to... Uh, Verse 15, Romans chapter 4, verse 15 says, uh, well, let's start with verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So one of the purposes of the Mosaic law was to bring condemnation, to show the people of Israel that they were inadequate that they needed someone greater than they. However, the law was a means of displaying God's eternal truths, what I've been calling God's eternal moral absolutes. And we noted several of those examples last week. Some of, uh, Many of them, we still, uh, obviously if they're eternal, then we, we should still follow all of them, like loving our God. That's an eternal moral absolute. From the very beginning, we were Adam and Eve were supposed to be loving God or not making any idols or loving our neighbor or no adultery, loving your na- uh, uh, no murder, excuse me. So here in John chapter 117, we looked there before, grace, or law came through Moses, grace came through Jesus Christ or grace originated in Jesus Christ. What John is saying there is that God established the Mosaic Law as a means of administering His eternal truth during that period of time specifically, but His eternal grace, this special administration of grace, is coming now through Jesus Christ in a different way. All right, so turn over to chapter 6 of Romans because we want to look at our next passage. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. And I think we read this one last week, but I want to uh, point your attention to it and, and kind of uh, look at it a little bit in a little bit more detail this week. Romans chapter 6, verse... Uh, let's start with verse 12 and we'll read through verse 15. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Okay, so look at verse 14 again. It says clearly that you, who's Paul talking about? Okay, it's a very simple question, but who's Paul talking to here in Romans chapter 6? Roman okay, Roman believers. He's talking to the Roman believers, Roman church specifically. Church believers. And he's saying, you, Romans, are believers, are not under law. 
Okay, so the first observation is that Christians, I think this applies not just to the Roman believers, but to all people in the church age, you are no longer under law. Christians are not under law. Secondly, that grace cannot be saving grace since the law never saved anyone, right? We saw that in chapter 3, verse 28, that, that no one has ever been justified because of the law. No one was ever saved by the law. The law was there to partially to, to condemn, but to point them to, to, Christ, to uh, the Redeemer, ultimately. Third thing that we should note in this um, passage, chapter 6, is that being under this new form of grace frees the Christian from being mastered by the sin nature. And that seems to be his main point. That this new form of grace, whatever it is, you know, the grace that we have is grace upon grace. It's, it's upon the old way of grace. It's whatever this is, this new form of grace, it frees us from being mastered by the sin nature. And that's why in verse 12 he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body or go on presenting because that's not how you are. Verse 14, for, you, for sin shall not be your master. It will not be your master uh, because you are under law. One of the things that Christ does for us in uh, salvation as a result of His changing work that happens in us is He frees us from that old master that we had, the master of, of sin. Fourth thing we should note is that the context informs us that being under grace does not give Christians liberty to sin. Look at verse 15 again. What then shall we, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Okay, so Paul asks it in the form of a question, but he could say that in the form of a statement. He could say, we. We do not sin. We will not sin because we're not under the law. He does it in the form of a question because he wants to emphasize his point, I think. And so he gets his readers to answer the question for him, uh, answer the question for themselves in their mind. And they, it's almost as if they make the same response that he does. May it never be, or other translations, God forbid. You remember last week how we talked about how covenant theology characterizes our view? That... There's only two choices, right? You're either under the law of Moses. What was the other choice? Remember? Either under the law of Moses or lawless. Remember? So they, they basically say we either have to follow the moral law of Moses or we're lawless sinners. And we're not, under, we're, we're not doing God's will. And obviously we would disagree. And, um, and, and when we see this here, Romans 6, we see this this new form of grace that we receive, it doesn't free us to just do whatever we want. That's not what the grace means. Uh, verse 15 tells us that being under grace means that we must not be lawless, which implies that under grace we can be free from it. We're freed from the law. We're freed from the oppression of the law, but we're still required to obey. Now, what, what are we required to obey? Any ideas? Okay, we're, required, we're not obey, required to obey the law of Moses, so what, what has been put in its place? Do we just kind of do whatever we want as Christians? Okay, specifically, more specifically. Okay, the gospel. Okay, Christ's teachings. Anything else? All right, I'm looking for more specifics. Like 
Maybe I'm not asking the question uh, very well. So that's my fault, not yours. Um, I'm thinking of the... No, I'm thinking more of um, of laws that are given for church age believers. Okay, so obviously what I'm what I'm trying to say is when we remove ourselves, when Christ removes us from underneath the law, the oppression of the law of Moses, we're not removed to hey, let's just do whatever we want type thing. We still have commandments to obey, and so my question is more: what types of commandments are we to obey? And what I would suggest to you is that it is. Uh, those commandments that are given to the church. Okay, so if you read through Paul's writings, you're going to find a lot of commandments for the church to follow. That we are to be filled with the Spirit. That we are not to be drunk with wine. Okay, I'm just giving you a couple examples there from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. But there's there's uh, hundreds more. In addition to that, there are eternal truths in the Old Testament that we are required to obey, but not because we're under the law of Moses, but because those truths are, and we know, reason we know those truths are eternal is because they're repeated in the New Testament. They're repeated in Paul's writings. So, so I guess we could talk about it in terms of its motivation. Okay, so are we motivated to obey the command not to make any graven images? Are we motivated because we're still under the law and we have to obey that law of Moses? Or because... God makes the same claim, or Christ makes that same claim in the New Testament. And that's the difference. It's the motivation. Okay, we're, because if we put ourselves under the law of Moses, as if we have to obey the moral law of Moses, we will be overly burdened and unable to carry it out. I say, what's the difference between that and the laws we have to obey as Christians? I mean, isn't there a sense in which you feel somewhat oppressed by all the laws that you have to obey. And uh, certainly we can't obey those perfectly either. But, but, uh, but the point is, is that law of Moses is actually a greater weight that we can't bear. And so what Christ has done is He's given us the Spirit. We'll talk about this in just a second. He's given us the Spirit to help free us from that law, but also to, to, to obey these new laws that we've been given. All right? So... Um, let's see, where are we? Number five. The broader context suggests that Christians have been freed from the law by virtue of Christ's death. Turn to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? And then verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined together to Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. The purpose of this new association with Christ's death is not that we're free to sin and do whatever we want. The purpose is to give us a fruitful life. Look at the end of verse 4 again. To him who was raised from the dead, that we're joining together with Christ, this union with Christ, in order that we might bear fruit. So, Christ in His first coming ended the administration of law and established something new, and that's an administration of grace. Now, let's look at what this look at what this 
grace does. Turn to Titus chapter 2 for our third passage. Titus chapter 2. Would someone read verses 11 through 14? All right, so so first thing that we need to see there is that grace has multiple functions. Grace has multiple functions. One is that it brings salvation, verse, verse 11. Grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What does this salvation bring? What, what, what does it do for us? Well, verse 12, it instructs us to do these things, to deny ungodliness. It, it instructs us to live rightly, verses 12 to 13, and to anticipate the hope of Jesus Christ. And then verse 14 shows us that this is something that, that uh, ultimately God will do, that He's purifying for Himself a people. So the function of grace is to do more than to deposit truth, not just, okay, here's some more things that I want you to do. It's to shape lifestyle and character. It's to help shape us to be more like what Christ deserves. And we'll talk about that this morning in Revelation uh, it will be to shape us more into that beautiful bride that Christ deserves. That's us, the church. And uh, in order for Him to do that, He has to bring this special administration of grace where the Spirit of God now works in a, a, a more powerful way, I believe, than in the Old Testament because He's shaping us into the image of Christ and, um, and preparing us for our groom, Jesus Christ. And notice, this is how this grace, this is what we're trying to prove today, is that, that we've moved from the under the law of Moses to the law of grace. This grace is at the end of verse 12, in this present age, or in the present age. Okay, so, so clearly, Paul, again, he's talking during the church age, the church dispensations, the time since the church has been established, Acts chapter 2. So he's saying, in this present age, age or era, period of time. This is how God works, that He brings salvation through grace. He did that before, verse 11. But He also is pouring out grace to shape us, to change us, and to change us into something specific. And that is this, this one, verse 14, who will be purified for Himself, for His own possession. That's what God is doing in the church. This form of grace was established through Christ's ministry at His first coming. In verse 11, it says it, that uh, this grace has appeared. And uh, I think what Paul is saying there is that, that, that it has appeared at Christ's first coming. This grace has come and provided more than salvation. It's also provided this special administration of sanctification. Now, what I... What I don't want you to hear from this is that, okay, that means Old Testament believers, God didn't care about sanctifying them, changing them uh, to be more like more godly. Obviously, He did. But what I'm saying is He's making us into a, 
a, um, a more purified image than even the Old Testament saints were because we are being prepared for Christ uh, at this marriage that is coming up at the end of the tribulation. Okay, so Christ's death was there to obtain life for believers, but also to free Christians in this age from sin. And, and that's what He should be doing. That's what should be happening, I should say, in your life. That you should be uh, regularly shedding the chains, the weights of sin. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a good picture of that with running a race. You want to set aside the encumbrances. When you're running a race, you don't want to have all these weights on. A lot of times when, when guys train, I, I don't run myself. and Maybe the reason is because whenever I see people running, I never see them smiling, so it can't be fun. But, um, but um, I'm sure there's benefit to it. But, uh, but what I understand, when they train for, uh, for races, and some of you runners could, could testify to this, um, they, they put on weights on their ankles or on their wrists or something to, to weigh them down a little bit. And so when they're running, it feels, they feel encumbered and it helps build up their muscles more so that when they come to the race, they lay aside the encumbrances, the, the weights, and they feel like they can run much lighter, much freer. And, uh, and what, what should be happening in the life of the believer is that we're laying aside, not that we're... We should ever put on sin in order to train us to be better Christians, but, but that we should be laying aside the sin that we've already had on, a, on us. Like, like a ball and chain that's, that's been weighing us down. We can't run as, as freely and as, as well as we could if we laid those aside. And that's what Hebrews 12, I think, is, is talking about. So, so we ought to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look to the finish line, to the next life. And, uh, and do it with joy. And, and that's what God is doing in the life of a Christian. Not, not uh, continually dabbling and, and uh, jumping into sin with both feet. I mean, obviously there are going to be times where we, where we fall into sin, and, uh, but, but, uh, but we, we hate that feeling. We hate, we hate the, the, the distance that we have from God. We hate the, the times that we have to ask for forgiveness and so on. So, so we try to make those less and less. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing in us. So let me conclude this um, lesson and the series by just asking a question. Does a commitment to covenant theology or dispensational theology make a difference? Okay, I want to be clear that it does not make a difference when it comes to whether a person is saved or not. Okay, so if you run into someone that believes in covenant theology, that Israel and the church are the same, that God's primary purpose is to save people, it, these people are, are in general, they're believers. Like we would say in general, the dispensationalists are believers as well. So, so don't demonize them to the point. I've tried to be fair with their position um, uh, there are some doctrines, obviously, that... Okay, let's step aside from the dispensational covenant argument. Okay, and there are the other doctrines that would show that a person is not saved. And those types of people, we shouldn't just... Oh, just, we'll just set that aside because we know we're all Christians. And Oh, you don't believe Jesus is God? That's okay. I mean, that that's obviously a completely different category. Okay, so, but sometimes what happens is because we... 
we work hard to understand the text and understand the truth of the Scriptures, that that we make divides where we don't have to make like clear divides. Like we can't worship with you, we can't we can't do anything with you, uh, type of thing. So so what we're talking about here are other Christian brothers and sisters, other other believers in Jesus Christ. So so now let me ask the question again. Not talking about salvation, but does a a a commitment to either covenant theology or dispensational theology really matter at all? And uh, I don't think I would have taught this class if it didn't matter at all. So it does matter. It doesn't matter to a person's salvation, but it does matter with regard to how we will interpret the Scriptures. When we come to the Old Testament, when we come to passages in the New Testament, we come to even some of Jesus' teachings, how are we going to interpret them? If we follow a covenant theology perspective, then when we come to specifically the prophetic passages and a lot of the the law passages like in Leviticus and things, we often are going to have to spiritualize them in order to make them mean something that they never meant. That is, you have to use another form of interpretation. So it does matter when it comes to interpreting the Scriptures. And that's what I've tried to do this class I tried to show you that, that there is great value in looking at the Scriptures this way so that when you come to the Old Testament, you're not needlessly burdened, but you do clearly see the grace that was given from God through these people, through the law. In fact, uh, I say that the law was really oppressive, and it was, but they loved the law. They, that was a great thing for them. And the reason they loved the law was because it was the best thing going. But you know... In, in relation or in comparison to what we have, that's why I say the, the law was oppressive. And that's why Paul says it in, in, in multiple cases. It was oppressive because it, for them it was the best thing going, but they never got to experience Jesus Christ like we do. They didn't get to experience this special relationship with Him and the, the lively power of the Spirit like we. They, they had the Spirit, but they didn't have it as, as powerfully as we do. So, making a commitment to one or the other, covenant or dispensational theology, does matter when it comes to interpreting the Scripture. It does matter when we look at passages with regard to what God is doing in the world. Is God working to save sinners? And we could say yes, but is he this his ultimate purpose? And, uh, and hopefully you recognize his ultimate purpose according to Romans chapter 11, verse 36, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, is to glorify himself. It also makes a difference when we come to an understanding of the nation of Israel, not just in the past but today. If we think that that um the Israel is the church, church is Israel, then somehow we have to we have to connect ourselves to the nation of Israel today. And um and certainly we will receive blessings in the millennial kingdom as a result of the Jews, the, the kingdom of Israel. God hasn't forgot about them. We should still care about the nation of Israel and pray for peace in Israel because when there's peace in Israel, Christ will have come. It also makes a difference with regard to our understanding of the nature of the kingdom. Is the kingdom already here? Is God already Has God already established His kingdom? Is this what the Old Testament has been talking about and looking forward to all these ages ago? Is what we're experiencing now the failures and the, the the continued trials and 
and the, the conflicts, is that what the kingdom is about? Or is there still a future kingdom where Jesus will reign and make all things right? And where He will judge perfectly and swiftly? So it, it determines what you're going, how you're going to view the kingdom. It also determines when you see the church beginning. Okay, does it begin when the nation of Israel began with Abraham, or does it begin? Some people even go back all the way to Adam and Eve somehow and say the church began with Adam and Eve, uh, just saying that the church is basically believers. Or do you see the church beginning at Acts chapter two, with the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit came on the people with great power? Um, and it'll also determine uh, what kind of commands you feel that you have to follow that you recognize you have to follow. So what those types of differences are important. And, and those are all theological differences, our understanding of Scripture and, and our view of God and so on. And, and we'll talk about several of those theological issues when we get to the next class. Our next class, our next series of classes is going to start next week, and that is on systematic theology. And that's simply... Uh, on the doctrines of Scripture. So we'll go through things like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, of the church, of man, of sin, of the end times. And uh, I think I missed a couple there. But but we'll go through them and see systematic is looking at the whole Scriptures together, seeing it as a whole. How does it work within the whole of Scripture? And so we'll talk about several of these things um, like Israel, the kingdom, church, and so on that I just mentioned. But there are also some practical consequences. If we choose one over the other, that is covenant theology over dispensational theology. And, and most, most, um, most notably would be the way that we live our Christian life. Where does sanctification come from? Where does growth in godliness come from? Because it will affect how we pursue sanctification. Do we, are, are we doing these things because we have to, we feel as if we have to, I have to be careful here because uh, covenant theology doesn't see it this way. I was going to say, if we have to earn our salvation, they don't see that we ever have to earn our salvation. But it certainly depend, determines which types of laws we're going to obey. And, um, and so the way that you think is going always going to determine the way that you feel, the way that you act, the, your attitudes. And so that's why we spend so much time about how we think rightly about the Scriptures. It may seem weighty at times. It may seem unimportant. But ultimately, it affects how we grow in Jesus Christ. Because it's true, God does cause the growth, but He also expects us to cultivate that growth. And... Uh, so we need to make sure we're thinking about those things rightly. Any questions or comments, thoughts? All right, dispensational theology, um, 11 weeks. And um, we'll start with systematic theology next week. I think you'll really enjoy that. It'll be a, a encouraging study for you to see how God has worked throughout the Scriptures and these different doctrines that sometimes we look at doctrines and we just kind of you know, I, I, I believe that because I always have and the people who taught me to believe it told me to believe it, so I believe it. And I know if I don't believe it, I'm in trouble, so I, I believe it. But systematic theology will help us to actually see Scripture that, that proves these things and shows us why we believe what we believe. And that makes a huge difference in the way that we live and our, 
our fervor when it comes to those things that we say we believe. So when someone says, well, I, I don't see that. I, I think it's this. And we're like, okay, that's fine. But we see the Scriptures behind them and we start uh, looking into them a little bit more carefully. We start to see well, that does that has some implications for, for the way that we live and think about God and so on. So I hope that will be a benefit to you as we begin next week. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank You for uh, how You have revealed Yourself to us throughout the ages that You did not just uh, keep us in a cloud or in a fog so that we would have to kind of stumble around in the dark, uh, but You gave us Your truth in, in various ways and various levels throughout the ages. And now we've had it in really the pinnacle of all ways up until this point, and that is through... Uh, Jesus Christ revealing Himself by coming to this earth, uh, showing us what we ought to do, uh, removing from us the burden of the law, and, uh, and instituting this new law of Christ. And, uh, and we know that it's going to be even better in the next dispensation, the next age, the millennial kingdom, when He rules personally, when we will be able to interact with Him personally, not just through faith. Uh, not just through the Holy Spirit, but, but personally we'll be able to have conversations with Him. We'll be able to hear Him speak and to, to tell us what we ought to do. And, and we look forward to that which will be even a greater pinnacle than what we're enjoying now. And pray that You would bring that time on quickly, that You would end the misery and the struggles, the groanings of this world. Until that time, give us the strength to follow and to stand up and stand firm among uh, the 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 uh, forces of evil and, and the uh, bombardment of temptation that constantly comes our way. Help us in this hour to follow. We would focus on You and that we would uh, give our attention to learning more about Your Word and worshiping You as You deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.